Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. Uh, the Revs had a total meltdown this week in scenic Chester, Pennsylvania, as the Union scored five times in the second half, earning a 6-1 victory over the Revs. Uh, the Revs remain at the bottom of the table with eight points in 11 games and now have the worst goal differential in MLS after conceding 10 times in the last two games and 13 times in the last three. I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me, as always, is Sean Donahue. Sean, how's it going? I'm probably doing better than you after you uh, ran 10 miles this morning. So <laughs> you feeling it? Uh, yes, I'm very much feeling it. Uh, I ran the Broad Street 10-mile uh, race today, and um, I have not run that distance in years. So um, I am more or less getting up from a nap uh, about about 20 minutes ago, but I'm still feeling it. So if I seem a little low energy today, a little jeb, uh, that's the reason why. So, uh, But overall, I'm awake. I'm alive. My legs are still attached to me. So overall, that's a pretty big positive. Uh, Do you so, know and, work and, on the, uh, the fitness to, to fit into the high press? <laughs> I don't think I'm there quite just yet, but, uh, I mean, I, you know, I was pretty consistent the entire way through. I was still, uh, you know, at the same pace about mile nine as I was mile two. So unlike the revolution, I put on a, a, a consistent performance this week in Philadelphia. So I think I, I have that going for me. So, uh, <laughs> but Sean, uh, let's get to complaining about the revolution, kind of our, uh, new pastime. Uh, with this podcast. Um, what was your uh, main takeaway from this uh, complete mess of a soccer game? Yeah, I mean, I was ready to talk about how the the first half of this game was, you know, arguably the best half of soccer the Revolution have played all season. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of complaints all season long about how poorly the Revs have started a game. And they finally, well, they, you know, they gave up a really sloppy goal. Um, but otherwise, they had a good first half. Um, you know, they were all over the union for much of that first half. And then the second half was the worst half of soccer we've seen them play all season, which is saying a lot because they've played a lot of terrible halves of soccer this season. Um, so, you know, it's it, my, my takeaway jump from one thing to, to the next with that second half of soccer. But I think my, my final takeaway from this one is that, um, you know, every time the revolution take one step forward, they take another step backwards. So they, you know, they fixed their, you know, their first half of soccer play the, the past two weeks, they, you know, had solid first halves, um, only to collapse in the second half. So um, early on in the season, we were hearing Friedel talk about how they would have you know good second halves and do horrible in the first half. Now, now it's the opposite, um, and you know now that we're a season and a third in uh, to Brad Friedel's tenure, it's a, a little bit too late for the Revolution to still be trying to figure out you know how to play a, a full ninety minutes of soccer. Um, if Brad Friedel hasn't figured out how to get the team to do that now, uh, it's probably time to move on. And a loss like this is a loss that can get a coach fired. Um, I'm not sure that's what's going to happen after this game. I'm sure he'll probably get more time, especially if that you know DP is actually coming. Uh, but you know, it's just, there, there's no fixing this team. I think is my takeaway from this game, <laughs> not with the current yeah, coaching I mean, staff. And we have some questions too about Brad Friedel's coaching status. And, and we get those questions seemingly every, after every loss, but, um, there are, there are losses that you can kind of feel it. Um, you know, it's either embarrassing or a collapse or, you know, it just, there are, there are some losses that are worse than others. And this certainly feels like one of them. Um, the, the, Terrible thing, too, is that the Revolution were the better team in the first half of the game. Like you said, they went into you know a road game. They played very, very well. Um, they, they had really four big have... chances in the first half for to compare yeah. to zero for Philadelphia. So it was 1-1, but the Revolution had four big chances. They don't usually get four big chances in a game. I don't know if they have yeah. all season. And then, they, and then they 
had zero in the second half, too. I mean, it, it really felt like Philadelphia was lucky to be tied 1-1 going into halftime. And then the second half starts to concede early. But the Revolution seemed to be still fighting along. And then after that third goal in the, the 69th minute, you could just see them kind of just lose all effort whatsoever. It seemed like they were just trying to get out of there as soon as possible. Um, they, they really weren't putting any energy at all. And, you know, I think compared to this and the Montreal game that we had last week, um, that's two of the last three games where, you know, the team just kind of quits. Um, and, and when teams are quitting, <laughs> quitting early and, and checking out, that really doesn't speak well on the coach. So, um, you know, I, I think I always had the opinion that Brad Friel was getting a full solid two seasons, but I don't know how many more losses you can have where players are just flat out not playing anymore um, until you realize that this is a locker room that needs a lot of changes uh, and it all starts with the coach. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that kind of assessment. Um, it's a bit rough, but that second half was probably one of the worst halves of the year. Um, if not the worst, and it followed up a really, really solid 45 minutes for the revolution. And it's, you know, it, it is a shame, but that kind of just speaks to the, the the way their season is going. And we're only in May. I mean, we are two months into the season. Um, there's a lot of soccer still to be played. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into it later, but um, it's amazing that we're already at this point. That just kind of shows you how sideways this season has gone. Um, my key takeaway is probably the one positive uh, that I think I can take away from this match. I'm going to be a little glass half full, and it's going to be um, kind of compounding on my, my key takeaway last week, which is that I think uh, Caicedo too, Juan Fernando Caicedo, uh, I think he's a gr- pretty good player. I think they have a really, really nice striker uh, in Juan Fernando Caicedo. He scored again yesterday. He's seemingly uh, going to go right over that uh, over under five uh, threshold that I had set for him, but um, a really nice touch for a, a goal yesterday. He had a couple of uh, other nice passes to set up some plays. I know Teon Buchanan, he had a left-footed shot on goal. It wasn't a, the best shot, uh, but uh, Caicedo had a really nice uh, back heel pass to set him up. Um, I, I, you know, he, he is not someone that is going to turn an entire game around, but for the Revolution, who have had a difficulty finding the, the goal, finding shots on target, uh, finding s- some accurate finishes. Uh, I think uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo is kind of fitting the bill, and uh, I, I think they've found their striker going forward. No, that, that's the the one positive I think you can take from this game is, is Juan Fernando Caicedo followed up a two-goal effort with a, a goal in this one that was a you know real striker's finish. Wasn't the easiest chance of one-timer, and that's the type of thing that you, you want to see from uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo. He also you know was good in possession. He had 86% passing accuracy. He had three chances created, uh, three key passes in this one, which uh, has got to be the, the record for him so far this season, and you know took three shots overall, two on target. Um, that's what you want to see out of Juan Fernando Caicedo, and you know we were down on him early on. Uh, last week we we saw him get some confidence building goals and this week we saw him get another goal and um, really play a good game overall uh, you know I don't think there's many players that can come out of this game with their their heads held high or that you, you can give a lot of credit to but uh, Juan Caicedo might be the only one maybe you know Carles Hill as well um, but you know that that is the absolutely the one positive you can take from this is the Revolution do have one striker on the roster who can finish um, you know on the flip side to to, to go negative uh, Juan Agudelo had five shots not on target including a, a couple of sitters that a striker of you know what should be his caliber should put away you know, nine times or ten times out of ten um, so you know if there was any hope that 
kind of the, the easy finish that he had last week would get him on track. It certainly didn't in this game. Um, so, you know, for, for Juan Caicedo, uh, you know, plenty to be positive about. For Juan Aguadelo, um, you know, back pretty down on him after this game, I would say. Yeah, and I was going to bring up Juan Aguadelo. Um, obviously, he said 0 for 5 on uh, shots on target. Um, as, a, as a whole, the team struggled. Uh, four shots on target for the Revolution, 16 shots. So about 25% shot accuracy um, yesterday. Uh, Juan Aguadelo does a lot of good things. He he does hold up the ball well. He has some good ball skills, but yeah, he, he doesn't seem to be um, doesn't seem to have that striker's touch. Um, is not really getting shots on target very much. I, I know he had a one last week. He did score last week. He did have another chance that missed uh, last week, and then the uh, it wasn't really a cross, but there was that, that uh, ground ball. I'll say that was rolling across the face of goal that Agadello was right there for. Seemingly skied the ball over the net. Um, I guess just couldn't get a handle on it. Um, that really could change the entire perception of the game because then the revolution probably go into halftime with a lead. So um, yeah, not, not exactly a stellar outing from Agadello. I do think we'll see him more. He had 80% pass accuracy. Um, as I say, he, he did a lot of little things right, but for some reason he is just not there, not scoring goals, not getting shots on target. And uh, it's quite frustrating to see because, you know, if, if there was someone, uh, you know, in a two striker system, be nice to have more than one striker uh, finding shots on target. Yeah, and I, and I mentioned the Revolution were credited with four big chances in the first half. Two of those big chances fell to Juan Agodelo, and neither of those ended up on frame. One of those was, you know, just a couple yards out from goal that he sent wide, and then I think the other was a header that he sent wide. Um, so really a disappointing effort from Juan Agodelo, who, like I said, you'd hoped uh, had gotten some confidence from the previous game when, when he finally found the back of the net. Um, I, you know, I agree with you. He's probably going to see more minutes. He did some, you know, he's done some other good things the past two games, but you need your striker uh, to be putting away chances like that, especially, you know, the Revolution, their margin for error. Uh, it's not very high this season with how many goals they've been leaking. Uh, you knew the Revolution weren't going to get a shutout in this game. You certainly knew they probably weren't going to hold on to, you know, even just one goal that they'd given up given the injuries they had. Um, so, that, you know, that's really disappointing from Juan Aguadela, who, you know, like what last year he finished with three goals. This year he's got one. Um, for a guy that had such high hopes and potential, and we've, you know, we've hit a home on this one a lot so i'm not going to spend too much more time on it um it was just another disappointing effort where where, you know someone that should be the caliber that that you'd think he would be uh would put those chances away uh and you know it's really coming to hurt the revolution in a game like this one where they could have been up you know two or three goals at halftime perhaps if they had really put away their chances the way they should have you know four big chances and and one goal out of them is is not a good conversion rate uh, by anyone's standards yeah, and it's something that I think we're getting accustomed to more and more after every game. Uh, but Sean, let's let's stop complaining about the offense because that's not really what we're here to do today. Let's uh, go straight to that back line because uh, we have a lot of uh, criticisms uh, of the defense today. Uh, and let's start with the captain, Michael Mancien. Um, a bit of an interesting comment after the game by Brad Friel. Brad Friel kind of um, implying that Mancien was still hurt. He was still playing. He was on painkillers, according to Brad Friel. Uh, Mancien, too. Had an okay game, five clearances, one block, one interception. Usually we expect some better numbers from him, but it kind of makes sense that he was hurt. He did not seem to be 100%. Uh, Sean, what did you think of his performance? Yeah, I mean, I thought he was really bad in the second half when, when apparently the you know the, he was in more pain and, and struggling. I think he said that he was struggling in the second half. Um, for his own quote was, in the first half I was all right, second half I started to feel it. It's not an excuse. I need to get on with it, end quote. Um, and, you know, it did show in the second half. I think in you know, some of those late goals, especially, he was completely flat-footed and you know, didn't really look like he could sprint, um, which is not ideal. Um, so, you know, yes, some of that falls on, on Mancien for not being able to play through the pain better, I guess. Um, I didn't think it was a particularly good game from overall, even with the first half. Uh, but, 
more of that falls on Mike Burns for leaving the Revolution roster in such a terrible shape where, you know, a couple of injuries to the defense and they're absolutely decimated and can't find a, a, you know, a player to step in. Uh, and, you know, a third of the way through the season, they're already having to force a guy to play on painkillers, um, just to have enough bodies to play defense. That's just absolutely terrible. Um, anyone that's followed this team knows their defense of depth has been poor. You know, I don't know why they didn't go out there and, and sign some some help in the, in the preseason. That was certainly obvious. It's certainly been obvious the past few weeks that they really need defensive depth. Um, so that, you know, 100% falls on Mike Burns for a complete failure to to go out there and get somebody to help this defense. Um, and, it's, and again, it's been like that way for several years. It's been, you know, really thin on defense and they haven't done anything to fix it. It's kind of embarrassing at this point um, that they get to you know, a third of the way through the season and they're forcing uh, their captain in his 30s to play on painkillers. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't know what you can do. Uh, you know, the revolution in past years have brought in guys that maybe haven't been the high, high, highest caliber, a guy like an Otto Lowy I'm thinking of, a guy like a London Woodbury. Why can't you go out there and get a guy like that right now to, to step in? Because, you know, what's going on there right now with, with forcing veterans to play when they're injured, forcing veterans to play out of position? Uh, you can't do much worse than that if you were to go out there and, and, and sign maybe a college player that was on the fringes or some guy out of the USL. I just, I don't get what they're waiting for. You know, they have an open roster spot. They have two open roster spots. Um, you know, one of them's an international. I'm sure they're saving that for the DP. Um, but one of those, you know, can't be an international. So why aren't you going, going out there and signing somebody? And, you know, if down the road you need to open up more roster spots, you, you, you buy out Gabriel Somi, which you should have done in the preseason. That's, you know, another point to hit home on here now. It's how bad does it look that they didn't buy out Gabriel Somi in preseason where they could have saved his salary cap space. They could have, you know, freed up the international spot. Um, they didn't do that. They can still buy him out now, but they're not saving the cap space. Um, but if, if that guy can't make the 18 in games like this, we've, you know, talked about this ad nauseum at this point. Um, you know, how bad does that look in the Revolution organization that they didn't just go out and buy him out before the season? It's, it's kind of pathetic. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and we've complained about Somi a million times before. And, you know, we weren't huge fans of him, but there's no. I believe this is two straight games where there's no defenders on the bench or no natural defenders. I guess Wilfred Zahibo is technically a center back or can play a center back or whatever. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it, it is a little unfortunate. Edgar Castillo is really the only defender that kind of has that position locked down at left back. And that's the position that Gabriel Somi plays. But even still, you got to think that in the, the event that Castillo is hurt or if you need someone to play right back, I, I can't imagine why Gabriel Somi can't play there. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it seems to be uh, very confusing to why they didn't buy him out. He was in the 18 once this season, um, and, and they didn't play him, and they're not going to play him at all this season. It's pretty apparent that he's not going to be a part of this team, even when there are no defenders available on the bench. Um, they, they'd rather roll with that than putting Somi in the 18. So, yeah, uh, very, very confusing to why he's still in the team and why he wasn't bought out in the first place. Uh, and, and you can go let him sign back in Europe and – you know, everyone can move on. Um, instead, they're kind of holding them hostage for the time being. Um, but moving back on to uh, Michael Mancien, um, you know, there were that those comments about him kind of falling apart in the second half. I, I think it was actually pretty early, obvious early uh, in the first half that he had a couple of plays where he seemed to be lagging a little bit behind the seventh minute. Um, Alejandro Bedoya got in between behind the, the uh, back line. Um, behind Michael Mancien. And then a couple minutes later, there was a long ball where Andrew Farrell was able to recover uh, kind of a, a streaking player. And Caldwell was the second guy back. And it looked like Caldwell was kind of turned around and looked around. And, and, and he seemed to be looking for Michael Mancien, who was a little bit far up the field. So uh, knowing now what we know, I think he, Michael Mancien was in pain and, and probably wasn't uh, 100% to, to get back on those plays. Uh, but you can kind of tell early that the union were trying to uh, 
exploit that backline pairing of uh, Farrell and Mancien. And I don't know if they knew that Mancien was hurt early as well. But, um, I mean, if you look at the 11th-minute goal, they go right down the center of the field. Jack Elliott kind of squeezes behind. It looks like Scott Caldwell probably should have, you know, tracked him a little bit better and, and stopped that ball from getting through. But, I mean, he is perfectly right between Andrew Farrell and Michael Mancien. And, and, you know, it's uh, it seems to be that's where the union felt the weak spot of the game was. And it certainly worked out for them very well. Yeah, that that first goal, I think, falls on Caldwell more than anyway. That was pretty poor on his part to to not track his man. And then he kind of seemed like he was in a position where he could have perhaps blocked the pass, but it was a bit too slow to react to that as well. Um, but yeah, the, you know, we've we've seen all season where defenders have been split and there's been a, a guy right between them and, you know, neither of the defenders have necessarily been covering anybody and nobody's gone to mark him. And that was, you know, another case of, of that. But I, I, I think that one, if I were to place more blame on that one, it would go on Caldwell. Um, but no, I agree that Mancian throughout the match didn't look 100 percent. And especially in the second half, he looked worn down. Um, but I, you know, just on that note. You know, I, I think it is worthwhile pointing out that Philadelphia played a midweek game. Um, Philadelphia was on, down to their third string goalkeeper. Uh, Philadelphia's starting striker is having visa issues and might not be able to play for them for three months. So he wasn't there for this game. Um, this wasn't a Philadelphia team that was 100% strength. They had an injury in the 36th minute as well. Um, so, you know, the Revolution have their excuses with injuries. Philadelphia have their excuses with injuries and they were on short rest. Uh, so I think that's worthwhile and, and important to point out because, you know, Often you hear excuses made for the Revolution uh, and all the injuries they've had. Um, in the last few games, the Revolution have had a lot of advantages. Kansas City was an extremely depleted lineup. Kansas City was so depleted that they had to cancel practice this week because they only had six healthy field players um, at one point. So that cho- gives you an idea of how depleted they were when they faced the Revolution last weekend. Um, and then Philadelphia, like I said, down to their third-string goalkeeper, missing their starting striker. Um, you know, you know, these are games where the Revolution should be able to take advantage and get something out of them. And for the first half, uh, it looked like the Revolution were taking advantage of Kansas City, you know, having less rest. But I mean, Philadelphia having less rest than they did. Um, and then in the second half, the Revolution looked like the dead team, uh, despite the fact that it was Philadelphia that had played on Wednesday. Yep. No, absolutely. And and one more point too to make about you know the lack of depth along the the offensive line. And I just want to touch back on another point about. You know, this is a real failure of the front office to build that depth. But you'll remember, too, going back to the Super Draft, they drafted Tayon Buchanan and Dewan Jones in the first round, both picks that we liked. Both seem to be working out very well for the slots that the the Revolution drafted in. But you'll remember, too, that they passed on drafting in the second, third, and fourth round. Um, they sent all of their picks to D.C. United. I mean— they could have used one of those picks for a young center back. You can keep him for a year just as depth until you find a, a another you know player the next year. Two years ago, they drafted Josh Smith. Last year, there was Samoya. Um, this year, they have absolutely no fourth year you know fourth center back. Samoya uh, just build scored a goal, now. by the way. Shout out to him. <laughs> what in? Yeah, Where, but wherever what's he's he playing, playing now, <laughs> where is he? Where, wherever he's playing right now, yeah, I, I retweeted it. He got a nice little uh, goal this weekend. <laughs> He's playing in like the Nicaraguan Premier Premier League. I mean, it's really not anything. But you you understand the point where, you know, you you could have had a a guy making a minimum salary on the supplemental roster who, you know, in the event of an emergency, he could come step in and and play. And and we did see Josh Smith play that game in Seattle where he was needed to come in one week after. I don't remember the exact scenario, but it was either a red card or injury. And Josh Smith did very, very well. And I think that something like that would be better than, you know, throwing Michael Mancian out there on painkillers um, and, and risk him aggregating and uh, aggravating an injury further. Uh, I mean, that would be yeah. so anyway, that's just a bit of a, a rant I have. Uh, you know, there were ways they could have built depth and 
not necessarily going out to a South American club or a European club and, and finding a high-priced acquisition. There are ways you could have cheaply built depth from within, and the Revolution chose not to do it. They chose to play three center backs, and this year it's really hurting them. And just to clarify, uh, Samoya is playing in Guatemala, um, and his goal was actually like a nice volley in the upper corner. So if you haven't seen it, it's a good one. But uh, yeah, I don't think he's the answer to helping the refs out. But it's just <laughs> just just mentioning him as a, a you know one of those guys you could have drafted, um, like they did last year, drafting a guy like that, you know, is is probably a better bet than playing a guy in painkillers. Or you know, if they were, had been forced to play Zahibo back there, I think it's probably a better bet than that too. Um, it's, it's not that hard to go out there and get a serviceable center back to to be your fourth string guy on the roster, and they just haven't done it which is yep. you know, shocking at this point. Yep. So, yeah, go to go to Sean's Twitter feed to uh, check out that goal. Congrats on Nicholas Samoya on scoring his first professional goal before uh, Hauche. So, uh, Sean, let's kind of move on. We just touched on Scott Caldwell. We'll, we'll get to the rest of the back line in a second. But I think there are a couple of uh, goals that you could kind of blame on him. He seemed to be lagging a little bit behind. It wasn't really a great performance from Caldwell Wall. He did have 88% pass accuracy, uh, three interceptions. He was over three on tackles, no blocks, one clearance. He seemed to put in an okay shift on paper, but there were a number of plays he seemed to be dragging a little behind. Um, it was very un-Scott Caldwell-like. Um, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. That that first one, I think he knew it was his fault. You can see how he reacted on that play. Um, disappointment from him. You know, he's usually a very consistent, solid player, but I think we saw, you know, last year under Friedel, um, he made a bit more mistakes than are usually of him characteristically. Um, so this, you know, this was disappointing to see out of Scott Call. We'll usually expect better from him. Uh, you know, he didn't have too many turnovers in this one, so good for him on that, and a lot of other players did, but um, not one of his best outings for sure. And let's let's wrap up on the uh, back line. Let's lump them all together. Edgar Castillo, Luis Caicedo, Andrew Farrell. I don't know if anyone had a really good game. I thought Andrew Farrell played okay. Um, he, he had a couple of moments where he kind of cleared off a little bit of danger. I, I think he made up for Mancien, um not being 100% a little bit. He seemed to cover for Mancien, uh, in on, on some plays. But, Sean, give your assessment of those other three defenders uh, overall. Yeah, so I, I want to focus on Castillo for a minute because I thought Castillo had a terrible game. I thought the Philadelphia Union targeted him. Uh, Aronson had good runs at him. And then when Ilicino came on, um, he was absolutely destroying Castillo. Um, Castillo had a fantastic assist on Caicedo's goal. So, you know, credit to him on that through ball. And I think Castillo is, is more of a attacking left back than he is a defensive left back. Um, and, you know, we've seen some, some good presence from him on the attack, but, um, throughout the season, we've seen him struggle a bit defensively. And this game was one where it was really highlighted. It, it seemed like Philadelphia knew, um, he could be a defensive weakness and they targeted him. And, you know, I got to admit, I, from watching him over the years, I thought he was a better defensive player than we've seen so far with him with the revolution. Um, it's worth pointing out that when he was in Colorado, Colorado played a lot of, you know, five man back lines where he was playing more as a wing back. Um, so his defensive duties were more limited. Um, and, but I, you know, I expected him to be a better defender for the revolution than he has been. And this game really highlighted that, you know, his defensive liabilities, he got beat one-on-one a lot in this game. Um, you know, that was, you know, big disappointment really hurt the revolution. Um, we, you know, we talked about Mancian. I thought Farrell had an okay game. Um, there was at least one goal that he got beat on that I thought he should have done better on. You know, it, it's very difficult for a defender like Farrell to have to keep switching back and forth from right back to center back as he has been, as you know, again, due to the Revolution's terrible de- uh, depth. And, you know, covering for Luis Caicedo playing right back isn't the easiest thing either because Caicedo is, you know, not a great right back. We've talked about that before. Um, on that note, I don't think Caicedo was particularly at fault for any of the goals. I don't think he was the, the Revs' biggest liability, even playing out of position. Um, but I also don't think he did too much to help. Um, and he finished with just 50% passing, but defensively, you know, 
he wasn't a huge liability. I think I think Philadelphia attacked uh, Castillo more than they attacked Casado, which is, is is saying something. Um, but you know, none of those defenders can leave this game thinking they did a good job. Yeah, no, I, I agree with kind of everything you said there. Um, and you know, I, I think they are using Luis Casado at right back because they don't really want him playing a central midfield in a four four two. Um, I mean, I assume he would replace Scott Caldwell in that lineup because, you know, you have to have Carlos Hill somewhere in there. So Luis Caicedo is kind of unfortunately being wasted in, in some respects uh, with this formation. But him him at right back, I'm not really sure about. I'm not feeling very strongly about. Um, we have seen him. Was it the Montreal game where he was pushing up? He, he pushed up field and that right flank was exploited. Uh, I'm not so sure. It, it didn't seem like the worst performance from him overall, but uh, the more I see it, Luis Caicedo at right back, uh, the less I like. So um, I, I, I'm curious to see if Scott Caldwell survives the lineup next week or if we see Luis Caicedo move back to the center because in theory we have Ibaba and uh, De La Maya back, even if Michael Mancian is not 100%. Um, I wouldn't be shocked to see Andrew Phil move back to right back and Luis Caicedo would be free to return to the central midfield where I think he plays best. But who knows? Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, well, you, you know what's really unfortunate is we saw Luis Caicedo and you know not the same formation on the four four two diamond the Revolution played against the Red Bulls, and I thought that was one of the best performances we've seen from a Revolution player all season long, uh, maybe second only to some of Carly's Carly's heels performances, um, and he hasn't gotten to play that role since. Um, so that you know it's it's tough on Luis Caicedo that he's you know a really good player and we we saw him have an absolute dominant performance against the New York Red Bulls as that you know kind of lone. Uh, central defensive midfielder in a, in a 4-4-2 diamond shape. Um, and he, you know, since, since then, they've been forced to play him at you know right back or all sorts of other positions where it hasn't worked as well. Uh, so you know, I, I feel a little bit bad for, for Luis Caicedo that he hasn't had the opportunity to shine in some of his best positions um, after, after being so dominant there in that one game he got to do it. Yep. No, absolutely. Uh, one more note on uh, Carlos Hill. Uh, I, I don't think we've talked about him for a few weeks because there are concerns elsewhere on the field. And he, he kind of turns in performances week after week that we don't really need to talk about. Uh, yesterday, 89% pass accuracy, um, 9 for 9 on take-ons, 12 ball recoveries. Uh, overall, a really, really solid two-way game. Um, he also suffered six fouls. Uh, so between uh, this game and the Kansas City game where Kellen Rowe was uh, pulling him down at every chance he got, um, Carlos Gill has been taking a beating lately. Uh, but I, I did want to point out that it's been six games uh, since Carlos Gill had an assist. It's been eight games uh, uh, since he scored a goal. Uh, so, you know, I, I think a lot of people kind of see him as the consistent player, but he really has not been having a whole lot of chances um, to to make an impact on the offensive side of the ball. Um, he did have that nice cross to Juan Agadello on a free kick yesterday that almost went in, but um, I think that's another concern the Revolution have where, you know, your best player overall is really not making an impact on the score sheet. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where if, if you're a team playing the Revolution, you look at the Revolution lineup and, you know, you know Carly's heel can beat you. So if, if you're a team, you, you look at Carly's heel and you say, let's make somebody else beat us. And who else on this team can beat you? And there's there's very few guys that have proven um, they can create other than Carly's heel. You know, we talk about Dewan Jones and Tejan Buchanan. I think they're they're good players. They're nice rookies. They were good draft picks for the Revolution. Um, and they're very dangerous on the counterattack. Uh, but... You know, when the Revolution are in possession, are those guys going to create something out of nothing? I don't think so. Uh, not yet. There's still young players that could develop. But right now, you know, even with Tejan Buchanan having some you know, dribbling skills, um, I don't really see it. Uh, you know, when Pania was at his best, which, you know, ha- he hasn't been this season minus maybe one game, 
um, off the bench, really. Uh, you know, he was a guy that could do that. Uh, Diego Fagundes, when he's at his best, he's a guy that could do that. Um, you know, Fagundes didn't see any time in this game. Pena came on in the 64th minute. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think it's a you know, shock that other team focus in on Carles' heel and kind of limit his opportunity to get space and for to find, pick out key passes. He still had two key passes in this game. Um, but, you know, if I'm a coach of another team, I look at this Revolution lineup, and that's what I do. I focus on Carles' heel. If I need to have, you know, two guys tracking him all game, um, I do that because, you know, who else is going to beat you? You know, you take your chances with Dewan Jones and Tejan Buchanan being the guys that beat you down the wings and, and you know, set up a goal that way. Uh, but, you know, it's not surprising to me that Carles' heel has been slightly less effective as far as getting goals and uh, creating assists. No, absolutely. Um, and I guess we have one other uh, position to talk about. It is the goalkeeper, uh, Cody Cropper. Uh, the Cody Cropper redemption tour has gone completely sideways in the last two and third games. Uh, 13 goals conceded in the last, as I say, two and a third games since his uh, mistake, uh, fatal mistake against uh, Montreal a week and a half ago. Um, six goals conceded in this one. Certainly not all of it is on Cody Cropper. But, you know, I think any time a keeper concedes six times, uh, I think you're going to have questions about whether or not he's the guy going forward. Um, and especially when the game before the keeper conceded four times and three times in the game before that. Um, I did ask a, a poll question uh, during the game yesterday, uh, yesterday uh, kind of near the end of full time, because um, there were some mixed reactions uh, when I when I asked if it was Turner time. Uh, but I, I Put out to a little poll, 73% of people responding, that's out of 66 votes, uh, had Matt Turner being their choice to start next game. Cody Cropper, 14%. Brad Knight, and 13%. Obviously not a super scientific poll. I, I would imagine that if you were to poll all Revolution fans, it might be, I don't know, maybe 50% Turner, 30% Cropper, something like that. That's kind of, that's kind of where I was expecting it. Uh, but Sean, what are your thoughts on Cody Cropper, his performance yesterday, and do we see him next week in goal? Yeah, I think you pointed out, along with a lot of others on Twitter, is the rebounds you were giving up were consistently in very dangerous places. And yes, some of that's on defenders for not reacting, but there were some shots, you know, he made some good saves in this game. I'll give him credit. Um, but there are other shots that you know, weren't that difficult to save, and he saved it and then coughed up bad rebounds, and the Revolution had paid for that. And I think the third goal in this game, too, um, was kind of a slow dribbler that he got a hand to and couldn't keep out of the net. Um, you know, I, I've got a lot of patience for Cropper this season because I think most of the goals that if he's conceded, you really couldn't put blame on him. Um, there are a lot of goals in this one where I think you could put blame on him either for, A, not saving, like that third goal, or, B, for giving up a you know very tasty rebound on a chance where you know maybe he could have pushed that ball out of bounds or he could have pushed that ball away from the center of the of the box. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a good game from him. You know, we talked about that error that kind of led to the loss against Montreal a, a few weeks ago. Um, and, you know, his performance last week, I don't think you know it was too too much you could put blame on him for in Kansas City. Um, but you know, I, I think again. Uh, you know, Brad Friedel kind of has a 50-50 decision here. You could go with Cropper, give him one more game, give him a chance to redeem himself, um, or you could switch to Turner. I, I've said it all season long. I think Turner is the goalkeeper the Revolution have with the highest ceiling. Um, at this point of the season, with how far behind, with how poorly the Revolution have done, they're still not that far behind in the standings because way too many teams in MLS make the playoffs. Um, but at this point, given how things are going, I think it would make, it make sense to turn to Turner and kind of ride him for the rest of the season unless he really, uh, you know, proves that he shouldn't be starting. Um, because I do think long-term that he's, the goalkeeper uh, that has the potential to actually be you know, an all-star keeper if you can find consistency. I don't think Cropper is ceiling from what we've seen um, over the past few years. His highest turners, I don't think Brad Knight and certainly is his highest turners. He's you know, more, maybe more consistent. Um, but, you know, we've seen enough of all three of these guys now to kind of know 
what they're capable of. And Matt Turner at his best, um, you know, has been far better than what we've seen out of Cody Cropper at his best or Brad Knight at his best, in my opinion. Um, so at this point, if, if I was making the decision, I'd probably switch to Turner. Um, but I do think it's kind of a 50-50 call at this point because I think it's, it's you know, really terrible to constantly keep switching goalkeepers. Uh, goalkeeper, like striker, is a position where confidence matters a lot. Um, so if you have a manager that keeps showing no confidence anytime there's, you know, one little error here or there, uh, you know, it's, it's not a great look. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with a lot of what you said. And we are a pro Matt Turner podcast, so I think I'll have to give the tip to Matt Turner as well next week. Um, I, I think it's – I mean, I, I feel like it's a little unresolved uh, whether or not Matt Turner is going to be anything in MLS because he did have that hot start last year. He kind of faded and then he lost his uh, his starting role to Brad Knighton. But overall, I thought what we saw from Matt Turner was an overall positive. Uh, and I think he proved that he could be a potential MLS starter long term. Um, so yeah, I, I think at some point you have to turn it back over to Turner at some point, no pun intended. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I just don't see him writing the bench out the rest of his career with the revolution. Cause I think a lot of people are, will be a little confused to why he was left off without getting even really a full season, um, under his belt. Uh, Cody Cropper, we saw in 2017 and we've talked about this before, but his, uh, his expected goals to actual goals differential was one of the worst in the league in 2017 when he was given a full season. And I'd imagine that, you know, not, not a lot of these goals are his fault, but I'm sure that the expected expected goals to actual goals differential does not speak well to him, uh, you know, this season after conceding as many goals that, that have, as, as have gone in. Um, if you look at the goals yesterday, the second and third ones I'd say are probably the two where you can really put more blame on Cropper. The second one too, you know, Edgar Castillo guy gets in between Edgar Castillo. He's at a wide angle. Um, Cody Cropper has that, that angle sealed off. I mean, he, he, it was a chip. Obviously wasn't expecting it very much, but that was probably a play that he should have had. And then that third one, he got a bit of a palm on it, but it rolled into the net. Um, not a whole lot. He, you know, the defenders can do about that one. So, um, yeah, I, I think if there's blame to be placed, it's on those two. And then I think the fourth and the sixth goals, you know, both of them were on juicy rebounds that were just tapped in. Um, you know, some of that's tough luck. But again, I think there are some goalkeepers that don't give up those rebounds or push them not towards the center of goal where there's someone, you know, in the box ready to tap at home. So, yeah, overall, not all of that can be on Cropper. I, I certainly think the defense had a worse game than Cody Cropper. But I, I do think there is some blame to place on Cody Cropper. And I think it's legitimate to wonder if Matt Turner should be starting next week. Because, as I say, if if Matt Turner wasn't on this team and it was Brad Knight, and I think a lot of people would say, nah, just ride out with Cody Cropper. You know, but I, I think you're going to have to go back to Matt Turner at one point because he was a fan favorite when he came out. And, and I, I don't know. I, I he, It's, it's got to be turned over to Matt Turner at some point. And I feel like if you're not going to give Turner that chance and you're going to ride with Cody Cropper, it, it's a bit of a head scratching decision. Yeah. And look, he, he made nine saves in this game. So you got to give him some credit for. For, you know, there were a few few shots that were difficult that he saved. Um, it was not a disastrous performance by Cropper by any means. I do not mean he he. It is very legitimate to say that the six goals are more on the defense than on Cody Cropper. Yes. I certainly agree with that. But there is still there were two goals that that Cody Cropper could have saved and he didn't. Um, I mean, you look at the six goals and all of that is not on Cody Cropper, but there are still two that I attribute directly to Cropper. Um, so, you know, I. I it's it's a bit of a tough one, but I think you do have another young goalkeeper in Matt Turner, and I, I think you got to give him the reins eventually. And it might not be this game, uh, but you know we had this question after Montreal, we had this question after Kansas City. I wonder if Cropper, if he, even if he does start next week, 
if you know this is it for him if if he has another bad performance against chicago um you know i, I don't know how you can i don't know how many bad performances you have to have until you switch up the goalkeeper I just wanted to bring one other point up that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Just cause as, as we were doing this, I took I took a look over to the Audi Index for this game uh, that we've sometimes talked about but haven't talked about too much lately. Um, and for this game, uh, since we were talking about Edgar Castillo earlier, uh, you know, we mentioned that he had that, that great assist. So he got a lot of points for that great assist, but he still finished this game with a negative 26 on the Audi Index. So, you know... My uh, judgment of his defensive performance is based more on the eyeball test than on stats for this one. Uh, but clearly the stats show that he had a terrible game too. Um, so that's, you know, worrying for the revolution that their you know, veteran left back uh, that they traded for played so poorly in this one. Uh, but I just, just wanted to point out that the, stat, the stats support our conclusion that he had a horrible game. <laughs> uh, Sean, that, that kind of wraps up our discussion about uh, the, the revolution players and us kind of ripping into them. Um, but we we don't have a lineup discussion this week because it was mostly the same lineup minus Michael Mancien coming back in. Uh, but you wanted to talk briefly about the injury report. Um, I had a tweet yesterday that I think it should have been uh, gotten more likes. I was a little offended, but I uh, said something along the lines of uh, the MLS where the salary cap rules are made up and the injury reports don't matter. Uh, so uh, I, I want your uh, thoughts on the injury report because uh, – we both were kind of misled when we saw Antonio De La Maya not on it this week. Yeah, I mean, we we're kind of scratching our heads last weekend when Mancian and De La Maya weren't on it, and both of them were out injured. And so we assumed, you know, maybe those injuries really were last minute and didn't get on the injury report. Fine. So this week, neither of them were on the injury report again. Um, okay. Uh, it turns out that Mancian was you know, fairly hobbled and was taking painkillers, um, you know, you would have kind of thought he would have been questionable. That's fine that he wasn't. He played, so, you know, big deal. Uh, but De La Maya, you know, we heard last week he was, you know, had concussion-like symptoms, and then we heard on this broadcast that he was, you know, going through concussion protocol. It sounded like he had a, you know, impact test and didn't pass it. Um, you know, why is he not on the injury report when, you know, he hasn't passed the concussion protocol yet? It, it seems kind of bizarre that, you know, you're going through the concussion test and you're going to give him the impact test and, you know, whatever other tests there are, and he hasn't passed them, and he's not at least questionable on the injury report because, you know, you and I saw that injury report, and like, oh, you know, good for the revolution. Uh, they're going to have Mancian and De La Maya back. They can go back to, you know, two actual center backs playing center back, put Andrew Farrell at right back. It's not a big deal that Annie Baba and, you know, Brandon Bayer are out. I think, um, you know, we can talk about, you know, who's better between Annie Baba, De La Maya, and Mancien, but um, to me, there's not that much difference, and they're relatively interchangeable, um, you know, that says a lot given the salaries difference between those guys. Uh, but, you know, looking at that, I think it would have, you know, the revolution would have been a lot better off if they had two center backs and a, and a right back. And based on the injury report, we kind of thought they would. Um, so, you know, what's the point of the injury report if a guy that hasn't cleared concussion protocol doesn't even get listed on it? Uh, I don't I don't really get, you know, how that works. <laughs> but it was it's pretty clear that the revolution, you know, he didn't know whether or not he was going to be able to play uh, up until shortly before the game. So doesn't that mean he's at least questionable? Right. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I, I agree. I, I, I'm not totally sure the reasoning to why he wasn't even at least listed as questionable. I'd imagine that a lot of teams know that Mancien, you know, if you're, you're Jim Curtin and the Philadelphia Union, you know that Mancien and uh, not Castillo, uh, Mancien and De La Mayo were out last game. You know that there are injury problems along the back line. So I, I don't know if it's really secretive to not include him. I, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the 
what they're going for that, you know, they want to keep the union guessing and not know what to prepare for. But I don't even understand why you can't just list Dale May as questionable because obviously he's coming off of a concussion. I think a lot of people know that he's going to be, you know, he, he has those issues and he, he's recovering. Same thing with Mancienna. I mean, his injury that he had last week, to my understanding, is not really a one week thing. So I, I was very confused to see him uh, not listed. And then, yeah, and then, Bradfield comes out this week and says, oh, yeah, just to let you know he's playing on painkillers. I mean, I'm not sure what the point of injury reports are if teams aren't going to give accurate information. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, to me. So, yeah, no, I'm uh, not a big fan of uh, injury reports if it's just going to be, I don't want to say misleading, but, you know, and this isn't the first time, too. I feel like there have been other times, too, where injuries have been, you know, sprung up. They release the lineup and then Jeff Lemieux will say, oh, yeah, so by the way, so-and-so is hurt. And they'll say, like, oh, he was hurt yesterday. So it's after the injury report. But, um, you know, I, I think the with De La Maya staying out, I, I really question the validity of injury reports and if we even need them. Is this like the reverse Patriots where the Patriots would, like, list Tom Brady as injured every single week even though you knew he was going to play? <laughs> or the Revs are just, like, leaving guys off there to, to confuse yeah. their opponent? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what they're going for. I guess Brad Friel's trying to learn a little bit from Bill Belichick, but um, I don't know. It seems quite pointless to me. So, I mean, I don't think it's any teams are shaking in their shoes to, to if, if De La May is playing instead of Farrell at center back. Uh, yeah, given if, the way the Rebels are Bob right is starting over De La May, I don't think any teams are like, oh crap, we need to rewrite our entire game plan here. You know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, Sean, you want to get to some um, tw- Twitter questions? Yeah, actually, I just had one last thing I want to touch on before we do Twitter questions, sure. um, and that's the the athletic article that came out uh, this week by Sam. I'm not going to pronounce his last name because I would butcher it. Um, but the one part of that I wanted to point out because we talked about how you know kind of dead the revolution looked in the second half of this was the quote from Andrew Farrell, um, in which Farrell said, "We burned ourselves out last season." Um, and then adds that the teams realize what we're doing. We didn't catch many off guard with the higher press towards the end of the year and we struggled. Um, have they burned themselves out already this year? You think based on what we saw in the second half of this last game where they looked kind of dead? I, I don't necessarily think they've burned themselves out, but I think that they know that they're not a playoff team. They know they're not going anywhere. And most importantly, there's no promotion relegation. So obviously they're not motivated. Yeah, no no so, players outside their cars either. Yeah, it's a road game, so they're not going to have any fans standing by their cars because they're taking the team bus. So there's really no motivation there. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think they know early on that this is a bit of a lost season. And I mean, I, it points to that players don't like playing under Brad Friedel. You can kind of tell that a lot of people have checked out and they're not buying into this team and they're not buying. And, and, and you know, you, you, you could have as many players only meetings or closed door meetings or heart to hearts and sing Kumbaya as many times as you want. But, you know, this is the second time in three games that this team has folded like a chair the second that they, the, they've conceded a goal late in the game and they, they really don't have a whole lot of fight back. So I think it's really more that this is just a, a team that's spiraling downhill and, you know, the attitude in the locker room uh, is negative and it's a bit contagious and it's kind of spreading through the team. That That's my guess. I mean, you can kind of see that these players don't want to be there right now. Well, and the only other thing I'll add is if they burn themselves out, you know, halfway through last season or whatever it was last season, isn't that put more onus on them in the offseason to have gotten more depth? <laughs> right. Isn't that just another thing that adds to the fact like, oh, we're playing in a system where we get burned out. You know, doesn't that make depth even more important? I mean, they added depth up front, you know, on one side. They, they did on one side, and they completely ignored the other side. They, you know, traded. They got rid of um, Dielna, which made sense, and didn't replace him. Um, and they, you know, brought in Castillo. 
Um, but then they got rid of Samoya. Yeah, so <laughs> if anything, they have less defensive depth this year than they did last year, because at least last year for part of the season, um, there was a, a hint that Gabriel Somi might play. Let me ask you this too, Sean. Uh, you know, we have the transfer deadline. The first transfer window is closing this week on May 7th. Um, so I guess that's Tuesday. That's two days away. Um, are, are you expecting any moves for the revolution to make? Or do you think that, you know, with the way this season is going, do you think that the revolution might actually be active in this window and make a move or two? I think we heard somewhere, and I'm blanking on where we heard it, that there was a 50-50 chance that that DP could still come. Yeah, um, so he's not be- coming. Before, he's not coming. Yeah, so, so he's not coming. Um, yeah. you know, I, the DP who is real, we, <laughs> we totally believe is real. Well, like I was saying earlier, I don't think it's that difficult to get a warm body that can play defense in. And at this point, that's better than nothing. Um, so part of me thinks that the revolution will go out and make the obvious move and you know get an American defender. Maybe they pull one from a USL squad. Maybe they pull one off the street that you know hasn't been playing like an Otto Lowy like they did a few years ago or several years ago now. Um, but you know maybe they go back and find a way to bring Josh Smith back or something. Um, but you know I, I, part of me thinks that they have to do that, and then the other part of me knows that they should have been doing that weeks ago and they haven't done it yet. So I don't know what to make out of it. Um, I still think that they're they're going to bring in some American player that's you know not a big name signing that's a kind of a, a nobody just to plug some gaps in defense and, and be a, a warm body back there. Um, but other than that, do I expect them to make an impact signing before the window closes? No, I think, you know, I think they'll probably make an impact signing in July when it's too late. I was actually thinking the other way. Cause I, I, you mentioned earlier, they have two open roster spots. I actually wouldn't be shocked to see them send someone out. Maybe someone who's kind of fallen out of favor in this team. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see, you know, uh, boy, I, I, let me pick a name here. Um, I don't want to say Teal Bunbury, but let's say Teal Bunbury. Um, I, I wouldn't be shocked to see Teal Bunbury traded for maybe a draft pick or something along those lines. Um, I, I don't think Teal Bunbury would be traded. I think he's too respected in that locker room. But um, I, I'm sure there's some people that are on the outside of the 18 uh, or frequently in the bench. Um, maybe Fagundes. I mean, Fagundes, the thing with Fagundes, though, is that he actually is an asset that I think a lot of teams would pay for. I know that a lot of our listeners are low on Diego Fagundes, and that's fine. But you have to understand, he's on a team-friendly contract, and he's 24 years old. Um, I mean, he's the fastest player in MLS history to score 50 goals. Um, there are multiple articles last year that did MLS trade value, and Diego Fagundes is listed in, I think, the top 30. So you don't go from being a top 30 asset in MLS one year, and then drop you know be, be worth a, a, a first you know a, a super draft pick the following year i mean they, they could actually get some allocation money for him and i think the move i'm kind of thinking of is you know they really just want to clear a roster spot um you know gabriel somi would be the obvious choice but I, I don't think anyone is really buying um gabriel somi so maybe a wilfred zahibo i mean maybe someone takes a uh a chance on Wilfred Zibo, similar to how Portland took a uh, chance on Claude Dielma to see if he is worth anything. Um, maybe something along those lines. Maybe Ryan Wright impressed at USL that maybe there's a uh, team that will you know take him as a depth striker. Striker. Um, I, I'm not so sure, but you know if you have two open roster spots, um, you know I I think that the Revolution are hesitant to do anything because you only have two more signings until you have a completely full roster. And I don't know, I, I could see them sending a message to someone that, you know, maybe they aren't very happy with the effort as of late. And, you know, 
we see with NFL teams or MLB teams. I think last year, you know, haha, Clinton Dix was traded from the Packers after he screwed up something. Uh, I mean, the next week he was gone. He was traded for a sixth round draft pick. Um, there are a couple like instances the Kai like Kamara that. situation where the, where the Rebs got him a few years yep. ago. <laughs> that's a that's a much better uh, example actually of what I'm thinking of. I mean, this is such a disaster, and you have the trade deadline in two days from now. I mean, Juan Agadello. I mean, could you, MLS teams would take Juan Agadello because they think the Revolution are misusing him. So maybe well, you send maybe him not at a salary. You'd probably have to send some, some allocation money true. with him. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be you would not be getting a whole lot back. But you know, maybe you make an example and you say, you know, you can be gone, you know, next week if you're not putting in consistent performances. Um, so I mean, that that's kind of speculation on my point. But you know, this team has a lot wrong with it right now. And you know, if I'm the Revolution. Yeah, you're obviously looking into bringing in new players and bringing in uh, some warm bodies. But I also think that there is a lot of players here that just aren't producing. And maybe you make an example uh, and just knowing that's in the Brad Friedel playbook of motivation of, you know, if you're in this lineup this week, you know, you earned it in training and it's all about effort and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, sending out someone for peanuts if they're not producing or sending someone at a discount if they're not producing in the lineup might send that message to the team. No, it's a, it's a good thought, and it, it wouldn't shock me. There are some, you know, there's a lot of redundant pieces on this roster. Um, guys that, like you talked about, because of those draft picks, the Revolution have a lot of guys that can play the wings. Um, and, you know, right now, Friedel seems down on Diego Fagundes, Christian Pena, uh, both guys that have proven they can be very talented and good players in MLS. You know, my only question there is, you know, if the Revolution are, are, are starting to think about bringing in a new coach, and you know, we talked about it a, a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last episode, I really can't, I've lost track of this point because they're all blending together, um, about how the Revolution have that big gap in June, and that seems like a time where, you know, you could make a coaching switch and give a guy a chance to, you know, kind of mold this team and at least, you know, stylistically um, over those three weeks and, you know, set them up to have a, you know, better 2020 at that point. Um, and, you know, maybe another coach finds a way to use Diego Fagundes or finds a way to use Christian Pena um, like they've been used in the past and like they've been ineffective in the past. Um, so that's my, my only hesitation there. But I do think it's a good point that, you know, if, if he wants to prove a point, um, there are some guys out there that you could trade and maybe you trade one of them in MLS for a, you know, center back that's, you know, fourth string on some roster or, or, or something along those lines. Yeah. And it's also another thing too to point out is that there's so much youth on this team. It's getting close to play the kids time. I mean, it's, it's getting close to developing players as opposed to, you know, Tyam Buchanan and Dewan Jones and Justin Renex for that matter should be playing more than Teal Bunbury. If you're buried in last place, because as great of a guy as Teal Bunbury is, he's not going to be here in five years, whereas Justin Renex or Tayon Buchanan might be. So there's that too. Yeah, and, and Justin Rennes has, has gotten pretty far down the depth chart at this point, it seems like, with, you know, Pania and Fagundes moving to the bench, he seems to be behind them for kind of the, the same positions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, that's your future right there. Um, if this team is, if this you know season is, is lost uh, at some point, yeah, it does make sense to maybe offload some of the veterans that are underperforming and give a chance to the, to the younger guys to play more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, so uh, ready for Twitter questions, John? Sounds good to me. Okay, so uh, we're actually going to go with a Facebook question. We got one question on Facebook. Oscar Liberos asks us, honestly, I just want to know what happened after the first uh, first half. Is it bad coaching or bad players? A little of both. Um, I think Philadelphia was good coaching from Philadelphia. They clearly adjusted at halftime. They, they kept their fullbacks 
back a little bit more, knowing that their you know their wingers could still have a lot of joy against guys like uh, Castillo. I think like like we mentioned, Elasino came off the bench and really had had a good time against Castillo. Um, so I think Philadelphia kind of stopped Buchanan and Jones from being effective by making sure they closed those gaps and kept their fullbacks at home, um, and then you know knew they had enough offensively to, to still create chances, and that worked out really well in their favor. Um, and the Revolution really didn't do anything to adjust. So it was you know good adjustment by Philadelphia. To, they saw what the Revolution were doing. Um, they found a way to counter it. Um, and then, you know, on the Revolution side, they didn't do anything to adjust. And then on the Revolution side, you know, we talked about Mansan uh, looking even more dead in the second half. Castillo, you know, wasn't good enough. Um, so, you know, both. Friedel didn't adjust, and the Revolution players weren't good enough to, to handle the adjustment that Philadelphia made. Yeah. Uh, Mike Kennedy asks us, it seems like the central pair got murdered in the second half. Was it mainly Farrell and Mansian or a lack of familiarity? Um, You know, I... I I, I do want to give Mancian a bit of a break because of, you know, what Friedel said. And I think his play, you know, kind of reflected that he wasn't a hundred percent. I don't think Farrell and Mancian are a particularly good pair. I don't think Farrell should be you know, playing center back as much as he does. Uh, he's again, a guy that does, that's good at doing a lot of emergency defending. Um, but you know, he, he has those big plays because the team gets stuck in situations where they have to emergency defend. And if the positioning and the communication was better between those two, that might happen less. Um, but with that said, I, I, I think the, you know, Castillo was a bigger problem than, than both of them in this game. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that too. And and I think we're giving Mancian a bit of a hall pass too, um, because he's on painkillers and cause he's not hundred percent. We did have another question from Barbara S. Uh, what do you think about Mancian? Is he a main part of the problem? I think overall in general, we we've kind of been critical of Mancian's performance this year and, and the fact that he's still maintained the captain's arm man. Um, but I don't think you can really, um, criticize too, too much. Cause he clearly was not 100% at all yesterday. So yeah, um, well, when John, you say, is he part of the problem? But then, you know, <laughs> is De La Maya a better option? And I'm not sure we've you know seen performances this year to, to say definitively that De La Maya is a better option or that Andy Baba and De La Maya are a better pairing than Mancian and one of the two of them. Um, so, you know, given his big salary and given the fact that he's captain, um, he's an easy target and he should be a target. Uh, but, you know, when you say, is he part of the problem? You know, do they have someone they can switch to that's better? I don't know that the answer is yes. Yep. Yep. Um... John Trainer says, uh, some, someone please give Andrew Farrell a hug, played out of position again, hung out to dry tactically, and then has to go in front of a camera and explain this fiasco post-game. Man deserves better than this. Uh, and I, I got to say, too, I mean, we aren't giving a whole lot of credit to the back line, uh, rightfully, uh, after yesterday, but Andrew Farrell does seem to take accountability after the game. Um, I think when we talk about people who might have the captain's armband, I think Andrew Farrell got, had it at one point last year, too. Um, he, he certainly does take responsibility, and um, I don't want to say that he didn't put much of an effort forward, but um, I, I think that Andrew Farrell is giving 100% at all times. And um, But as I say, out of position, uh, doesn't look 100% comfortable. Um, yeah, agree, agree with all that. The, the only thing I'll say on that note is that the last game Andrew Farrell played right back in, I thought he was one of the weakest players on the pitch for the Revolution. So I, you know, I feel bad for him that he gets stuck playing out of position. Um, and he's, you know, had some big moments this season, but I think I, I want to say it might be was the Montreal game where he last played right back and uh, was really poor. So, and I think he made some mistakes in this game as well. So, you know, yes, he takes responsibility and yes, he works really hard and yes, he's had some big moments this season. Um, but, you know, he's not without fault either. Uh, Marcos Aguilar asks, uh, what does Friedel tell his player after tell players after a game like that? What does he tell them moving forward with such poor results? Players may, if not already, start to lose faith in the manager. 
Um, and actually, Friedel had some interesting comments about what he said uh, post-game. He, he said something to the effect of, uh, I talked to them after the game. I normally don't do that because emotions are highest or something along those lines, um, which is a bit of an interesting thing to say because I think a lot of people expect you to talk to your team after a game. Uh, but, so uh, we, we actually do know what he said. But, uh, Sean, what, are your, uh, what, what do you think Friedel can do and what do you think Friedel can say to his team to uh, turn the ship around? I don't know what you say to your team at this point. Uh, I mean, the tactics you're giving them aren't working. Um, you know, they're not performing up to the level that, in some cases, you've seen them perform at higher levels in past seasons. Um, you know, at, at this point, I'm not sure what Friel can do to turn things around because I feel like, you know, he's probably tried everything that, that he thinks he can try. Um, I, I don't know what the options are at this point, to be honest. He's in a tough position. He's, he's put himself into that tough position, but he's in a really tough position now um, where, you know, after a team is defeated in that fashion, especially after the way they played in the first half and, and played well, um, I, I don't know what you tell a team. There's only so many games in which you can say, hey, this is kind of a moral victory. Um, you know, we, we did something well in the first half and we can build on that. Uh, but, you know, you're 11 games into your second season now. I'm not really sure that that's going to hit home with your players at this point. So I'm, you know, if, if I knew what to say in that situation, maybe I should be coaching. <laughs> Well, not just that too, but this is mostly the same roster as last year where he kind of, you know, criticized them for not putting full effort, you know, towards the end of the season. And I think a lot of players were tuning out to that message already and it's kind of rolled into this season. This isn't like he has new players too. I mean, you know, whatever he is trying to tell them, he's been trying to tell them for nine months. So, Oh, boy, it's it's really rough. I'm not sure how they're going to dig their way out of this hole. Brad Friel really is. I mean, his hot seat is getting warmer and warmer, it seems like, by the week. Um, and, and I don't know what he can do to turn around. Um, but anyway, uh, we actually have kind of a you know the standard questions after a loss questioning uh, when we'll see a change there. Uh, Mohammed Hussain uh, says, how much longer until we see a change in the front office and in the coach? Uh, Adam McLean asks us, will Burns finally be fired? And then uh, at... Uh, I'll just say is is he's uh, at hashtag Friedel out. Uh, how long will it be until management starts to notice slash change things? So you know we we get a lot of these questions um, after every game, after every loss. I think for the last point we talked talked about this. We were looking at the international break in June, where the Revs have about 20 days off, uh, and we said that might be the earliest we see a change in coach uh, Sean. Any change in your opinion after uh, last night? Look, and, and that's also the time when, you know, a lot of coaches become available, too, is around then, when other teams are making moves or, if, you know, if the guy's coaching in Europe when their season's over and they might be making a move. Um, so if I'm the Revolution front office, uh, I'm, I'm maybe not making the move yet. Um, but I'm actively looking to see who might be available in June uh, because I don't think there's, you know, too much gained by you know letting Friel go and, and um, you know, bringing up one of his assistants as an interim a, you know, interim coach for you know, a couple of weeks until you can find somebody better. I think if you're, you know, the revolution, you you're in a position now where you take some time to to find uh, who that next coach could be, and you know, you, you work on that. And if somebody, if you can get somebody that's available, you bring them in, in June and you let Friedel go then. Um, you know, assuming he doesn't have a miraculous turnaround before then. Um, but you know, I, I still couldn't really see the revolution making a move right now. Even you know, and even if they did, I'm not sure that it would benefit them too much because I doubt. Um, you know, the right coach is available right now, or it wouldn't be just panic signing to replace him. Um, you'd go to some interim coach that's on Friedel's staff. And I think they kind of need a, a clean break when they, when they do make that break. 
What about Mike Burns? I mean, obviously, I think, you know, replacing the coach, there's going to be a lot of tactic changes. And, um, you know, it, it, it'd be very messy to do it midseason, especially with that DP coming in. Uh, do you think Mike Burns isn't as a, on solid ground? Do you think that we might be seeing a change in the at the GM position anytime soon? I think it's kind of the, the same boat as when they make that change of, of coaching. They also need, should be making the change at GM. Um, you know, we, we saw what happened in, <laughs> in Colorado where they, you know, pulled the plug really quickly. They, um, their, their GM has been doing a poor job. They haven't got rid of him yet, but he's only been there four years. Burns has been here 15, um, and has, you know, done a pretty poor job. I would, I would argue. Um, and you know, coaching staff, they made a quick, quick coaching staff there too, but I think the revolution at a point where Burns has been here so long, I know he hired Friedel, he hired heaps. Uh, I don't think heaps was a complete disaster. Friedel has been so far, um, to me that those both happen at the same time. Um, at the same time, you know, if you can find somebody that's experienced and that's available now, um, at that position, maybe you do that. So you don't lose another transfer window um you know with a, a gm that you know maybe you're thinking about replacing should be noted too that um as you mentioned colorado fired their coach anthony hudson he was in his third season bradfield was only in his second um and and yeah you're right that the gm everyone's looking at the gm uh because obviously that was one of his hires um he's on the hot seat as well uh, i would say that and i think i've said this a number of times but i, I think that if brad Friel goes you have to fire mike burns and i i think they're giving him another full season i think that they're they want to see where the revolution end up after a full second season um and i i think too you know there are a number of players that brad Friedel, you can tell has had a hand in bringing in um michael mancian being one of those his contract expires at the end of the season so you know that might be a little bit of a easier breakup to let him go along with brad Friedel and mike burns um i, I don't think anyone is going to come in and fix this short term anyway so i i think there's no real hesitation from the revolution ownership to let this second season play out under the Brad Friedel tenure um, and then make a decision at the end of the year. I still think he gets the full year, but um, who knows if we have two or three or more of these games where the revolution are giving up six goals. Um, I, I think you're going to see, and I, I do think that that sped up the Jay heaps firing that seven, nothing loss in Atlanta. I was pretty convinced that they were going to let Jay heaps finish out the season, let him go at the end of the year. I think his contract expired at the end of the year, regardless, it seemed like they were just doing him a favor of letting him, you know, mutually part ways. And that seven nothing loss happened, and it seemed like he was. I think he was fired a week or two later. Sean, I don't know if you remember. Um, you, you you have a better memory than me of those things. Um, but it seemed like that seven zero was the, um, you know, the the uh, nail in the coffin for Jay Heaps. So you know, if, if there's another game like this where it's five six not you know six nothing or something along those lines, uh, I don't think. I think that certainly speeds up the process uh, in, in replacing Brad Friedel. Just to clarify on Hudson, he was actually brought in at the end of 2017. So I think you might have saw 2017 nope. on his resume. But he's been here yep. just the same length as, as Friedel. Um, the, only, the only credit I'll give to Friedel, though, is uh, Hudson finishes his tenure as head coach with only eight wins. Friedel's got 12. So that's 50% better. Yeah, and, and Brad Friedel also hasn't completely trashed his players publicly. No, I he's, mean, Anthony he's... Hudson. Anthony Hudson more or less resigned when he said that he he had the worst roster in MLS, or or he said that you know they're, they're a, the a bottom, bottom group of players is what he called right. them. <laughs> Which isn't even true. I mean, they have Phil Haber and they have Kai Kamara. Like there are some good pieces on and Tim Howard. They have some good pieces at at, at uh, in Colorado. I know they're aging and they're veterans, Colin but Acosta. to call them bottom class players is ridiculous. Well, and when you're responsible for bringing in a good chunk of them too, um, right. but you know, how do you, you know, we talked about Friedel, he, you know, questions players' efforts publicly, which I don't think is the greatest. Um, but this is a whole nother level, what, what Hudson did. How, how do you show your face at practice the next day after calling your players a bottom group of players? Uh, oh, that's what I mean. I, I can't believe it took him. I think they fired him on a Wednesday and he made the comment Sunday. I was surprised it took that long. 
I was truly surprised it took until Wednesday to, to let go of him. I, I really kind of figured that, you know, they'd have a meeting later that night and say, yeah, well, you can't coach this team anymore. So. And the the one thing I will say about Friedel is his comments have kind of been trending in the opposite direction where we, you know, I think we rightfully called him out for not really putting any blame on himself. But um, as the season's gone along and I don't know if somebody's talked to him, I kind of, I kind of get the impression based on the, the 180 he's done that maybe somebody did um, that, you know, he's taken a lot more blame on himself uh, than put it on the players. So I think that, um, you know, he's he's trended away from, from what it was that Anthony Hudson did. Uh, no, I, I agree. I think there's some slight differences, too. So you're absolutely right in the uh, call out. That's what I saw. I saw 2017 and I, I was under the impression he had more time uh, th- than he he did. It really is about a comparable amount of time to Brad Friedel. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I think Brad Friedel is not at that point where Anthony Hudson is at just yet. Um, I, I as I say, I still think Brad Friedel's getting the rest of the season. So we'll be de- we'll be we'll be uh, answering those questions all season long. I think Sean um, Phil Fleischer asks us: uh, The Revs have four games in two weeks, uh, including that uh, friendly against Chelsea. Uh, the MLS o- opponents are pretty me- mediocre, but it's pretty unlikely that the Revolution will get more than three points. If this season is a complete loss, what roster moves can be made to save next season? Yeah, I think um, you know if this season is a complete loss. Your your best bet at this point is to try to avoid tying the hands of the next coach um, by bringing in big guaranteed contracts. Avoid bringing in the next Gabriel Somi that's going to be stuck in your roster for a couple of years. Um, you know, avoid maybe even signing this next designated player unless they're a, a surefire home run um, that the next coach might not want. Avoid doing what you did with uh, Jay Heaps, where you you know spent a lot of money on Christian Namath, um, who clearly didn't fit Brad Friedel's plans when Brad Friedel took over shortly thereafter. Um, you know, if, if this season ends up being a complete loss, I think that's what you do again, unless you can go out, um, in June, I think the best move you could make is to go out in June, find your next coach, uh, give him the summer window to make a couple moves and then position him in a lot better of a place to, to start next season and kind of realize that this season, you know, isn't going to be the one that gets you over the hump. Although in saying that, you know, we have seen some teams go out there and change coaches in June and completely turn things around. Um, it's not unheard of, uh, the revolution did it actually in, in, in 2002 when they changed coaches, um, after the first few months and, and went on a run, they had that, you know, fantastic roster that year. That was largely disappointing at the beginning of the season. I think, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a different situation because the roster was much better back then. Um, but it's really not unheard of for teams to do that, change, change coaches midseason and go on a run. Uh, but you know, I'm rambling a bit here, but my, my thought process would be that you, you know, bring in that coach in June and give him the opportunity to make decisions in the, the midsummer transfer window. If that is your thought process that this season's over, uh, after this next stretch of games at the revolution, don't pull off a couple wins. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too, if you're, you're looking at midseason, I kind of talked about this earlier, you need to get rid of your, you know, big, big salary players that are kind of blocking your younger players from playing. Um, I, I think guys like Juan Agadello, you know, you're, trying to get rid of him even if it's for a measly return so you can get brian wright some reps uh you know teal bunbury you want to move him elsewhere and get what you can for him and 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 that's for two respects you want to get your young players some playing time and you want to build some assets so when you are ready to get in a position where you are looking at the playoffs you have allocation money or draft picks or whatever to uh to, to make a move so yeah i there's a lot of things they can do if they are looking forward to next season because there's a lot of players that are making a, a decent amount of money uh, and aren't exactly producing. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. It'll also be interesting to see uh, how many, you know, if Mancian is playing as much as he is down the stretch. Because um, I imagine he's not coming back with the revolution next year, especially if Brad Friel is fired. Um, at least based on that salary cap, I, I can't imagine he resigns with the revolution. 
Um, the, the only other thing I want to say too is, you know, you we we talk about the mediocre schedule the Revolution have coming up against, you know, not great teams. They're playing the Chicago Fire, who have been underperforming this season. You know, Chicago, and there's a lot of reasons to, you know talk about Chicago Fire and, and the tough situation they're in, uh, but they went out and made a trade for Francisco Calvo, the captain of Minnesota United, to come in and fix their defense. Um, you know, you can make trades at this point of the season to to make huge improvements. I think Calvo could have a huge impact on the Chicago Fire, um, and <laughs> maybe he'll do that on Wednesday when they face the Revolution, uh, but that's an example of something the Revolution could do, and maybe they overpaid for him, and maybe you needed to overpay for him, but you know, the Revolution should have plenty of TAM and, and GAM at this point uh, to go out and make a move like that, and we see other teams doing it. Um, so it's just, just something to think about when you look at the revolution's upcoming schedule. Um, with that said, San Jose is the next home game for the revolution. And if the revolution cannot get points against the San Jose side, that's been, you know, really poor this season. Um, you know, and if they go into Chicago and they get nothing and then they go into San Jose and get nothing, um, you know, maybe you don't fire Bradfield right before the Chelsea game, but if he's not on the hot seat at this point, um, at that point, you're in, you're in serious trouble. Um, the offside trap has some uh, comments too about Brad Friedel. He says uh, Friedel's tactics seem to be 100% based on pressing up as high as possible. It makes for entertaining games, but usually lead to a loss, especially with this roster. Uh, it seems painfully obvious to me that Brad Friedel is a terrible manager. Uh, we have enough talent to be mid-table, but our team is too predictable. We press high and have a weak back line. We can never sustain an effective high press for 90 plus minutes. This DP better be a game changer, or we are absolutely screwed. Um, don't get your hopes up, I would say. Uh, and even a, a new, new DP, I don't think that changes a lot of the tactics uh, in the back line, as we've said. I mean, it's tinted that this guy, this player coming in as a midfielder, so I, I still think those problems um, will exist. Uh, Sean, I don't know if you have anything to add on that. I think that's kind of what we've been talking about already. The only thing I'll disagree with on there is I don't think the high press leads to entertaining games with the exception of that sporting KC game. I think uh, if you have a good high press, maybe it can, but the Revolution's high press has more often than not led to pretty boring games or blowouts, blowout losses. So I, I agree with everything that was said except for the entertaining games part. Uh, the offside trap also says, how weird is it that it feels like the first half was the best half of soccer the Revs have played all season? Uh, and he also says, how good is Carlos Gil? Uh, we've had, he had some insane run. He had some insane runs this game, despite the awful scoreline, uh, both of which we already have touched upon. So I, I don't feel the need to uh, dig too heavily into that. But it really is kind of crazy to wrap your head around the fact that the Revolution, you know, played extremely well in Kansas City, couldn't close out the job, and then uh, had an incredibly good first half in Philadelphia. Uh, and, and, <laughs> once again uh ends the game in a completely miserable spot uh really just a total letdown two weeks in a row no red cards though that's positive no red cards gotta look at the positives gotta look at the positives um zachary grimes asks us is this the most embarrassing loss in the brad friedel era um there's some competition for that i would argue that the three nothing home loss to a montreal side that was missing their two best players and arrived a couple hours before the game on their plane and was stuck at the tarmac for hours and was stuck at the airport hours the day before five plus hours might be more embarrassing just given that games at home and given the scenarios but this is certainly up there and is uh, in the conversation with a few other losses um but if i had to pick i might still go with that montreal game just given the circumstances were completely aligned for the revolution to to come out of that game with a win I actually would go with the L.A. Galaxy game because um, that was three points secured. You had a massive crowd on hand. And, and that game was the turning point of that 2018 season. You could kind of tell the team, and, and they've admitted that too, that after that loss, everything kind of turned and spiraled downhill for them. So, I, you know, it doesn't look as bad on paper. But I, I think that three to two Galaxy loss, a Galaxy team that didn't even make the playoffs and, you know, Zlatan wasn't playing – 
you know, I, I think that one takes the cake for me in terms of the most embarrassing loss, just because it was so sudden and it was so impactful. Um, the Montreal game, as you say, is also up there. I think, too, that even though it was a 2 nothing game, I think the Atlanta game from a few weeks ago, you can add in there just because it was so one-sided. Um, and Atlanta had so many struggles coming in that you expected the Revolution to put up a bit of a fight. Um, I think losing to the um, uh, FC Cincinnati, the expansion side at home, uh, was ridiculously embarrassing as well. I think that just and, – and FC Cincinnati's form in the past month or so has been pretty dreadful. Uh, so they're they're acting more like an expansion team. I think at the time you could at least take um, – you know, as a bit of a consolation that FC Cincinnati was – you know, I, th- I think they went in and tied Atlanta – um, they, they seem to be battling for a playoff spot. They've kind of been moved back down into the bottom of the table. So, um, yeah, there, there is some competition there. Um, I, I think the Galaxy is number one overall for me. I'll take Montreal over this game too. Um, but this one's probably a solid number three for me. Um, ultimately, I, 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 the score line is what will stand out. Um, but, you know, it, it was goal. The game was over after three to one. So, um, you know, I, I – think at the end of the day, I, I, it does not impact me personally that much. I, I think it's just losing to um, a similar market, uh, a team with a similar budget, and a team that has just ran much more efficiently um, and, and having that scoreline, which is so embarrassing. Yeah, you mentioned Cincinnati, and they're another team that's coach has commented on his players not being good enough recently. So <laughs> they've, they've kind of hit a, a rough spot. Because they've taken a lot of players from their USL team and moved them up. So oh, you yeah. can kind of actually understand that comment. It's, a, um, it's accurate. It's absolutely accurate. And there, there are actually people on Twitter, FC Cincinnati fans on Facebook and Twitter, that are complaining about missing that they were in the they they wish they were back in the USL because uh, their season has gone downhill so quickly. Uh, so it's kind of funny well, to see it's, that. Uh, it's also funny there were a lot of FC Cincinnati fans that if you said anything negative about their roster before the season would freak out on you. But yeah, well, you could say that about the Revolution too. I remember Matt Doyle saying that uh, the Revolution had it was Christian Panea and ten question marks. Uh, and a lot of people did not take that well. And we, we, I, I was one of them. I, I thought the revolution were going to battle for the playoff team and uh, turned out to be 100% wrong on that one. So well, it's, it's Carly's heel and, and uh, 10 question marks at this point. That is, that is true. That so, is true. So yeah, even that was wrong. Carly's heel, question mark. So uh, wrapping it up here, Cameron Young, is it time to make a change? Uh, is it time to make changes to the entire starting lineup apart from players like Gil, Buchanan, and Caicedo? Uh, even defensively without depth needs to be changed. Um, I don't know how you make changes along the back line because they don't have the personnel, as we said. But, Sean, uh, do you think it's time to change up the lineup? I mean, I honestly don't know what you do at this point. I'm you know, 100% with you. There's not changes you can make in the back line. Um, playing guys out of position on the defense helps absolutely nobody. Um, but with the the rest of the lineup, um, you know, heel obviously done enough to keep starting. Juan Casado has obviously done enough to keep starting. Um, you know, I still keep going back to the fact that Diego Fagundes and Christian Pania are the really the only other two guys in this roster um, that I would trust to create something in possession um, when another team's, you know, on the defensive. But we haven't seen it this year, and, you know, they've been benched because of it. Um, so, you know, yes, as the season wears on, I agree with your point about playing the kids. But, you know, otherwise, I, I don't know what you do at this point. I, I kind of... You know, I think Friedel's done a, a poor job, and I don't know that he's gonna, you know, has an idea, a way to, to change the tactics and make this work. Um, and you know, maybe another coach can make it work, but I, I don't know that changing the players at this point really does anything to help Friedel because he's he's done it a lot already. Yeah, no, agree. And we've seen a different lineup seemingly every every week, um, except after a win. So, uh, yeah, Sean, uh, no more news. I, I don't think uh, from this week. Uh, did you have any final thoughts that uh, you want to throw out there? 
No, I just, you know, if you if you haven't read the Athletic article on the Revs this week, um, it's, you know, it's a worthwhile read because it kind of details what goes on with the revolution throughout the week and, and preparing for that, that difficult game and talks about another closed-door meeting. Um, so if you hadn't heard about the closed-door meeting <laughs> before the Kansas City game, there was one then too. Um, and also some interesting quotes from, from Juan Aguadello about that meeting finally making him feel like they were a team and how they didn't feel like a team before that, which is also a bit concerning that, you know, nine games into the season, they didn't feel like a team. Um, but but a, a worthwhile read if you if you haven't read it. Yeah, it, it's a bit concerning, too, because a lot of these players played last year. So you wonder how long these feelings of resentment have been carried over. Uh, and, and you also wonder, too, I mean, that article came out after the Kansas City game. It did seem like there were some positives coming out of that Kansas City game. I wonder if a lot of that is already outdated uh, following a 6-1 to loss in Philadelphia. So, uh, But it is a good article. Do Go check it out. Um, Sean, uh, I, I don't really have any final thoughts, I don't think. Um, Boston City FC had their home opener. It did not go very well. Uh, Hartford City uh, won, I think, five to nothing. It was five to nothing at halftime. I think that was the full time result. Uh, so uh, n- not exactly going very well for the Lions. But um, I don't think there's anything else that I really want to get to. I just need to go back. I-, I need to take a nap. I'm getting really tired here. So let's wrap it up. Uh, you can follow us at uh, on Twitter at Revolution Recap and also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Uh, Sean, where can people follow you on Twitter? You can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. And we, the Revs have another midweek matchup in Chicago on Wednesday. Uh, we're unsure if we're going to have a midweek podcast. We're unsure of our availability. I'd love to do the uh, bribery uh, game where uh, you know we, we ask for X number of reviews. Uh, and if we get a certain amount, we'll, we'll come back and do a podcast. Uh, we can't promise anything. But we still want to uh, get reviews. So please, as I say, go to iTunes. If we get the more reviews we'll get, the more, uh, uh, how do I say it, obligated we will be to uh, make it work. It might not be Wednesday. It might be Thursday night uh, that we release a podcast. But we'll we'll do our best uh, as we can. So uh, Chicago on Wednesday and then the Revolution return home to face San Jose next Saturday. Winnable game in my opinion. Right, Sean? One of the the few games on the Revolution schedule that you look at and, and think might be winnable, but um, San Jose has actually been playing a bit better in the last couple of weeks after starting the season terribly. Uh, they're still winless on the road, though. Yeah, beat Kansas City, uh, if I remember correctly. Beat Kansas City in Kansas City. So uh, yeah, they're they're in good form right now, but have to fly across the country uh, across the country uh, <laughs> to Fortress Foxborough. Uh, seems like a really big game for the Revolution well, the, to uh, the get weird back on the right thing. track. The weird thing in that was uh, there was a Globe article this week where I think Frank DeLapa said they were expecting something like 30,000 fans for that game. And I cannot, fi- for the life of me, figure out why. Um, but, I mean, if the the Revolution have struggled for motivation because the stadium has been pretty empty for the last few games, um, I guess this, that won't be the case for this one. Because at least according to, to Frank DeLapa's Globe article, I think he said they were going to get like 30,000 fans for that game. And I have I, I have no idea why. But, I mean, that might make it more more reason to uh, to watch that one. <laughs> A lot of uh, United States men's national team fans that are uh, still mad at Chris Wondolowski and are going to stand outside his rental car after the game. I think that's my guess. So uh, We'll have a podcast next Sunday or on Wednesday or Thursday. Uh, but until then, thanks, everyone, for listening, and go Revs. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.